Vacation Bible School. We all now been? All right. We're good? Okay. Um, I highly encourage you for to find children to invite next week. Now, I'm not saying kidnap children. That's still a federal offense, all right? I'm not running around town doing that. But my mom got saved um, from VBS, and um, it's just going to be an awesome time. So uh, I would really, really encourage you, um, if you have children, if you have grandchildren, if you have things planned, um, I, I, I would... You can still cancel those, but I think that it's going to be such an important time because Jesus said, let the little children come unto me. And most people who become followers of Christ do so when they are young. So we're going to start next Sunday evening at five o'clock with a gourmet hot dog dinner because our hospitality team here does not do anything less than gourmet. So they will be there and we will have gourmet Lay's chips And we may even have some Pringles for the very refined folks in the house. But you come at 5, and then we're going to start VBS later uh, that evening and go all the way Sunday night, Monday night, Tuesday night, and Wednesday night. So if you're not able to come for some reason, um, if you're in the CIA and you've been called away on a secret mission that cannot wait, other than that, we hope that you're here with us. But if you can't be, we pray that you would pray uh, for us. And also VBS people, uh, if you already have a role in VBS, uh, we're going to be meeting in my office immediately after the service. So I'm going to just try to, once we're through here, just go right on over there. We're going to give a synopsis and kind of our, our game plan for that. And if you're here and you you say, hey, you know, I haven't signed up for VBS yet, but I'd like to help out. I'm not sure exactly where, but I'm interested. Come and join us. And uh, if you're just there to check it out, that's cool too. But it's going to be an awesome, awesome time. And deacons, uh, we're going to fix all the world's problems tonight at six o'clock. Amen. Got a deacons meeting, so we'll do that. But before we get into the message, I want to take a few moments and pray for uh, Whitney Sweat. Uh, She is going to be leaving tomorrow to go to Italy for three weeks. And as we've talked before, uh, some people think of Europe as a place of vacations for uh, place of vacation for Americans. But in fact, it's a very, very spiritually dark and dead place. It is what's called a post-Christian region by missiologists, people who uh, study missions. It's a place that at one time in the past, most people believed in the Lord to some extent. But today, atheism is very rampant there. So they're going into uh, what may be a beautiful place outwardly, but it's very dark. So if we can just take time and please don't listen to me pray. You pray to the Lord. Number one, that God would give them success by means of being able to share the gospel with people and that the Lord would keep them safe her and the team from Liberty University and bring them bring them back. And Susan Lynch got back last Sunday from a mission trip in Nicaragua. And I'll be going on a mission trip to uh, Brazil next month. And so towards the end of August, what we're planning on doing is kind of having a mission Sunday where we can all report back about what the Lord has done in Nicaragua and in Europe and also uh, in South America. So I hope that you'll be there for that. And uh, something else, on the 31st of July... We're going to have a, a student band um, that I used to be a part of with the youth ministry in South Carolina. They're going to be here on Sunday morning. These are middle schoolers and high schoolers, and they're going to, uh, to lead us in musical worship. And so it's going to, they're very talented. They love the Lord with all their heart. It will be done well. 
it will be done for some of you. It will be good for you. Um, we're not going to be moshing uh, unless Fred Tudor gets carried away. But, um, you know, however the Spirit leads in that way. But it's going to be an awesome time. So please be here on the 31st. It's going to be great. So let's take this time and pray for Whitney that the Lord would bless her in Italy. Lord, we know that you told us to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And Lord, we thank you for Whitney and her willingness to go. Her willingness to go when she could be here earning money. Instead, she had to raise it to go. And Father, I thank you for the generosity of the people here at Rocky Mount Baptist who gave so generously so that she, was, she, so that she would be able to go. And God, we pray that you would help many people come to faith in you, that you would draw them, that you would save them, that you would use Whitney and the team to preach your word, to love people, and that you would keep them safe, God, on the travel there, when they're in the country, and also back. And Lord, that you would raise up from among us uh, people who would not just go all around the world, but would here in Franklin County, God, that you would help us to go to our neighbors who are lost and to simply tell people that you're real. And God, we thank you so much for being a God that is on mission and you're not done with us either. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in Luke chapter 2 in your Bibles, Luke 2, we're going to take a look at this message this morning, When God Works Backwards. It's a story in the Old Testament of a man named Gideon. And Gideon uh, was pretty much a coward. He was hiding from the enemy soldiers, the Midianites. He was down in uh, what you could call like a, a, a canal. It's a place where he was threshing wheat, but he was below ground so that nobody could see him working. He was that afraid of the enemy soldiers. Then the angel shows up to Gideon. Guess what the angel says? You great man of valor, which means... Going back to our wrestling fans, you macho, macho man, Randy Savage, you are the man. And, and he's looking around saying, who, me? And the angel tells him that God is raising him up to lead an army to defeat the invaders of Israel. So you know the story. What happens is, is he says, everybody who wants to come, all the men who are ready to fight and defend their homes come. And, and there are 32,000 men who come. And God says, that's too many. Seems like God worked backwards, right? When you're in a war, you want soldiers, right? No military history book that you pick up will say the first thing that you do when you have 32,000 soldiers is you get as many of them to leave as you possibly can. It's not going to happen. And here it was. However many of you are scared, you can leave. (laughs) Everybody left but 10,000. If you're scared, you can go home. Then God says, you still have too many. 10,000 is too many. So take them down to the water hole. And the ones who who get down and lap like a dog, keep those guys. But the other ones who drink like human beings, who get down and and cup the water with their hands, tell those guys to, to go on home. So guess how many he was left with after the waterboarding test? 300. 300 down from over 30,000 soldiers. You see, it seemed that God was working backward. That does not make sense, does it? And then God told him, you know what I want you to do? Have all the guys have a ram's horn, have your trumpet ready, and have a, have a, uh, a clay pot. And underneath that clay pot, have a torch. 
I don't want you to do is everybody blow their horns at once and say, for the Lord and Gideon. And what happened? They threw down their pots and all of a sudden there's this yelling and these horns going off. And, and then they, you had lights all around the enemy encampment. And what the enemy thought is that they had been invaded by a much larger force. And the enemy massacred themselves because Gideon followed God's advice when it seemed that God was thinking backwards. Have you ever been to that place in your life? Where you say, God, it says all of these things in your word about how you're sovereign and how you love us and how you can take care of us. But it seems from the evidence, from the data that I'm seeing, that I'm experiencing, that you are simply not working at all. And I just want to give you the main idea here this morning. When it, God seems to work backwards, I can still trust in his sovereignty. Now, what is God's sovereignty? God's sovereignty is his absolute and total control over everything. That means that there is nothing that is outside God's control. Nada. Y'all all right this morning? That means that there is nothing outside God's control at all. That means that there is everything in the world that exists is under God's control, even the super bad stuff. So when we look at Luke chapter 1, we see a very curious phrase in verse 1. Luke chapter 2 begins, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed or registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. Now right here, let's stop and let's... You say, now, Jeff, you're telling me that in my life, when God seems to work backwards, that I can still trust his sovereignty, his plan, his power. What assurance can you give me that that idea is true? Number one, we can trust in God's sovereignty even when everything seems twisted because, first off, God can still, and this is in our outline in the bulletin, God can still work through corrupt systems. Now notice who we're talking about here in verse 1. Caesar who? Somebody help tell me out. Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus was a was pretty much considered to be God incarnate in the Roman Empire. See, now, Jeff, you're telling me that God could work through the Romans? Let me give you a better picture. If we were to go back to the Old Testament, there was an evil king named Ahab. Ahab had a wife that you guys, you would have not wanted to meet Jezebel even on a good day. In fact, she was so scary that Elijah, who had defeated 400 prophets of Baal by himself, when he found out Jezebel was coming after him, he skipped town. I, I talked to one guy, he says, man, I don't have the fear of man, I have the fear of woman. Y'all, y'all read me? Alright? One of those. Females. Ladies. Alright? Mean wife who engineered the murder of a righteous man named Naboth. There was this prophet who came in when the king of, of Judea, Jehoshaphat, and Ahab were going to go fight against a, a common enemy together. And, and he said that, Ahab, you will not live past today. And Ahab said, take him out and get put it, basically put him in prison and feed him the bread of affliction. Torture him in prison. And then as they were bringing this prophet away, Micaiah, he said, if you live, the Lord has not spoken by me. Well, Ahab says, you know what? I don't think God's sovereign. I can do whatever heck I want. I put the prophet in prison. I See, I'm king. 
So what I'm going to do, hey, Jehoshaphat, I know the prophet said I'm going to die today, but let's exchange uniforms so that whoever, apparently, if the prophet has a hit squad out against me, then they'll think that I'm you and you are me. So Ahab goes into the battle. And the Bible says a certain archer drew his bow at random. <clears throat> Released an arrow. Don't have the archer's name. We simply, he was there shooting his daily quota of arrows. About to clock out, right? I've shot all my arrows, time to go home. And then it says that the arrow hit between the armor, the small precise place in the armor of a king, which he would have had the best Kevlar in the ancient world, all right? The tiny, the tiniest flaw, the Achilles heel in his body armor, the point of the arrow found its mark and pierced through, and Ahab, the evil king of Israel, who had murdered preachers, prophets of God, laid there and bled out in his own chariot. God is sovereign over the affairs of humanity. Then can you imagine being there about 300 years before Christ? You had this guy named Philip who had a terrible anger problem. Philip's wife would sleep with snakes. Guess who her son was? Alexander the Great. Now we know why he had so many issues, right? If your mom sleeps with boa constrictors, you're going to go out and put some hate on somebody and kill everybody in the world, right? Issues. And this young man named Alexander, barely out of his teenage years, began to conquer everything, even to India. It was like you met Alexander and he killed you. You were done. The Greeks cook over the whole known world. But he drank himself to death. And then there, there, there's a group of people who came after him shortly after called the Romans. And the Romans were able to fight better than the Greeks because the Greeks used what was called a, this is for our history nerds, a phalanx. If you've seen the movie 300, shield upon top of shield, spear over spear, rows deep to where you had this rotating type of scissor action. And if you met a phalanx head on, you could not beat it. But the Romans figure out how to fight in cohorts. They would have their shields on top, their shields in front, and a cohort could break and form back together. So if you could split a phalanx, then you could defeat it, and that's exactly what the Romans did. So now the Greeks, who had conquered the whole known world, and had given the world something that they had never really had, a common language. In fact, we have right up here on our pulpit a Greek New Testament. The New Testament was written in Greek. But why? You say, you say, Jeff, God is sovereign. Why? Did, what did God have to do with the Romans? Well, the Romans were really good at one thing, killing people, right? They're also good at something else, and that was building roads. So what the Romans did is they adopted the Greek language for purposes of trade, but then they built roads all over the Roman Empire. And then there was this story we find in Luke chapter 2 about how Jesus came into the world in a time where it had a unified language. It had a road system that you could navigate easily. And it also had a uniform code of laws. The Romans were not easy on robbers. You know, we've got this two strikes you're out or five strikes you're out. Romans, it was like one half strike and you're crucified. 
In fact, when Julius Caesar, before he came, became the uh, emperor of the Romans, he was actually captured by pirates. And they laughed at him because he says, when I get out of here, I will come back and I'll crucify all of you. Guess what he did? Once he got away, he came back, took over the island, crucified all of the pirates. So what you see here is God is putting all of these things together to bring his son into the world with a unified language, with a road system, and with a uniform set of laws. Now notice this guy named Caesar Augustus. Why is this significant? Here's what was said about Caesar Augustus. He was recognized as the sole leader of the Roman world. We're going to read some stuff in just a few minutes about how much they elevated him. Now that's happened in the past with elections in the United States where people, regardless if you're a Democrat or you're a Republican, in the past, whether it be JFK or Barack Obama or Ronald Reagan, people elevate leaders who are very charismatic to a point to where people place them on almost a a higher than human status. So what had happened also was, you say, now Jeff, what's the point of Caesar? Well, the Roman world was a republic before Caesar came to take it over. And what he did is he destroyed the system of Rome. It was, a, it was basically elections by free people who would elect senators who would make laws. But when he became the emperor, it was like he was the sole dictator. And let me just make a note here. Every time in any government, when you see a centralization of power, what happens to the people in those countries is that they go from being free peoples to being pawns of those in power. That's not a political statement. That's a biblically, historically accurate statement. So whenever you see someone trying to consolidate power, you ask yourself the question, why? It's always for the purpose of control. So when Caesar took over the Roman Empire, the Roman Republic crashed and fell and died. And from its corpse rose this mutated monster that historians call the Roman Empire. Empire, Totally different than the Republic, the Roman Empire that is described in the book of Daniel as a beast with iron teeth that smashed and destroyed everything in its path. I don't know if we have any Star Wars fans in the house, but you know, the, the Empire Strikes Back movies where you have the stormtroopers. They never could hit anything, could they? I mean, that's the one thing I looked at watching those movies that, you know, they're there with the laser guns. They can never hit anything at all. It's like... Marksmanship 101, learn how to shoot your laser gun, right? The Romans were a mechanical force that no one could ever oppose. Here's what was said about this guy, Caesar Augustus, who's the grandnephew of Julius Caesar. It was called Divine Augustus Caesar, son of a god, imperator of land and sea, the benefactor, watch this, and savior of the whole world. So God is working through a system in which you had a guy in total control who was literally considered by the Romans to be like God in the flesh. Then you see this phrase in verse number one, or verse number two, when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now, we're going to have to stop here for just a moment. For some critics, they say, now, Jeff, I thought that Jesus was born before the death of the Herod the Great, right? Herod, who killed all the children. Herod the Great died in 4 B.C., but we know from history from Josephus that Quirinius was definitely governor of Syria from 6 to 7 A.D. So does this mean that Luke missed it historically and we have an error in the Bible? Um, No. 
you're interested in this, there, there's a phrase here. Your Bible may translate it differently. It says, this was the first registration, first registration. The word here in the Greek is protos, which can mean first or before. So you could translate this very easily because language is not math, right? There's no always one-for-one basis. You could translate this before Quirinius was governor of Syria. There's also another way to understand this is that we have evidence, and this will be on the website this week, fully documented if you want to go research it more, that Quirinius was actually governor of Syria two different times. One time in the time of Jesus and also in 6 to 7 A.D. after uh, Jesus had already been born. So what you have here is you've got an all-powerful Roman Empire. Caesar commands in verse 1 and in verse 3, everybody obeys. Notice that they go to their own town, their hometown, to be registered and taxed. Let me say another word about taxation. Um, have you ever heard the phrase, there's nothing certain in life except for death and taxes? Right? That's not totally true. We've got a lot of people uh, who know how to evade taxes. All right, some who work in our in our government um, who are apparently very good at that and get high ranking posts. But that's another story for another time. Karl Marx said this: the way that you impose communism and a dictatorship upon a people, one of the ten planks of communism was a heavy progressive income tax. Because any martial arts person will tell you that. Um, if you're, if you're in, in some type of a fight, if you can control the head, for, we're not going to do this because it would be very strange to demonstrate this. A Muay Thai clinch from Rocky Mount Baptist Church pulpit, all right? But if someone comes at you and you get your hands behind their head and you pull their, you can control their whole body if you throw, move their head. In the same way, finances are the head. If the government can require a heavy progressive income tax, then they've got you not only by the head, but they've got you by the throat. That's what was happening. Notice verse 4. And Joseph uh, went to his political action committee, and no, it doesn't say that. Yeah, okay, I'm sorry, wrong version. And Joseph, verse 4, went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. It's like this. Caesar says, jump, you say how high. They had no rights. Now, now, now let's just stop for just a moment. Where were they? Somebody help me out. Where did they, where did they leave from in verse 4? The town of Nazareth. And they're going to which town? Bethlehem. Now, Mary is very pregnant. All right? Very pregnant. Ladies, you ever been there? Okay? You're, I mean, it, it's about to happen. We're very close. You see the sovereignty of God. This is fascinating. The sovereignty of God in working through corrupt systems. Because go ahead and write this down. It's Micah in the Old Testament. Micah chapter 5 verse 2. There was a prophecy that God had given. And it says this. But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me. Here it is. One who is to be a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. In Micah chapter 5 verse 2, God called the shots and said, you know what? My son is going to be born in Bethlehem. But we've got a big problem because they're not in Bethlehem. They're in Nazareth. Why in the world would they go to Bethlehem? Well, it's kind of like this. kind of like this. When people go on vacation, they go to places like... I don't know, Florida, right? 
or, or, or some, you know, I've, I've never, I've never known a person say, man, where are you going to go on your vacation? Bro, I'm going to go to Kansas, right? Like I just put me, bro, put me in the middle of a wheat field and just let me see the flatness, baby. I mean, if, if, I, if I can see a combine 20 miles out, I am good to go. Just give me something to sip on. I cannot wait. Kids, are you ready to go? And the kids are like, we want to, you know, can someone else adopt us? Nobody does that. We don't go to Kansas. We live, we live in a place to where people do come. It's the Blue Ridge Parkway, amen? Got Blue Ridge Parkway fans, all right? And people come to Franklin County to see that and, and to get cough medicine and, and other necessities, all right? So, so we, you know, we, it's hard for us to, to, to identify it because we live in a cool place. And it, but but why, why in the world, to think about this, God said the Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem, right? So how, why would the chosen woman, Mary, go to Bethlehem like because they had a good birthing center, right? Because their maternity ward was good? No, because, this is crazy, because God, in His sovereignty, placed Augustus Caesar, a very insecure, weird, I was reading about him even this morning, I'm like, this bro is weird. Like, he's just weird. He would have people come over. Nero would, like, have people come over and poison him, you know, later on. But he would come in and, like, and then go in a room awkwardly by himself and, and eat, like, a snack. And that was it. And everybody's like, that's awkward. But you don't tell Caesar he's awkward, right? He'll be like, you look, you look awkward with your head chopped off. You just don't do that. It's a weird dude. So God placed Caesar Augustus in the time and the role of being emperor of the whole known world to give a very bureaucratic, nonsensical command for everybody to very uncomfortably go to the town that they're born in to register. They didn't have e-files. You couldn't do it on the computer. You couldn't register here. You had to go there. So it was God in His sovereignty moving Mary and Joseph to the specific point to where the prophecy would be fulfilled, but God did that by working through a corrupt system. It was an oppressive, bureaucratic, tyrannical decree, but God used it to fulfill prophecy. Some of you, I believe, you, we've got people here, and people have problems. Amen? If you don't think you have a problem, bro, you have the biggest problem. My brother, uh, Josh, has been diagnosed with Crohn's disease. So he played basketball and and, and baseball. He played two sports in college. Uh, He could could dunk and was a very avid surfer. And he's he's an incredible writer. And he, he posted on his blog a couple of days ago this week something entitled, quote, The Need for Thorns. And the scripture, I would encourage you, please write this down, or if you have, if you can remember it, it's 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10. And think in terms of God working through things that may seem corrupt and may seem wrong. The Apostle Paul says, Therefore, in order to keep me from being conceited, I was given a thorn in the flesh. Here's what it is. A messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. 
For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, I am strong. And here's what my brother wrote about the need for thorns. He said, Paul wrote about having thorns. No, he wasn't speaking about the shrubbery of the day, but more specifically, the pain and trials that God not only allows in life, but uses to process the work of sanctification. That's a big word for you and me becoming more like Jesus. It is not a popular topic. You will not find a whole section in the bookstore on pain, trials, thorns, or struggles. If you do find these books, people usually avoid it because we as humans tend to run after fleeting feelings of pleasure to try and avoid the pains in our lives. Can I get an amen there? That is just a word. We run from it. Hmm. Then he says, and I'm here too. He says, I'm definitely guilty. Why is there a need for pain in life? More specifically, why is the Christian life so difficult at times? We've all heard the gospel, a loving God who comes to die for a sinful, angry, bitter, and selfish creation called humanity. We are faced with a choice to find our worth through the cross or to run after the pleasures of the world, which eventually lead to destruction. So he says when we're faced with thorns, we have three choices. First off, it's to run away from the pain. This is the most widely chosen response to pain. I know that I've tried it before to cover pain by becoming busy. Y'all all right? To become busy by avoiding it. God wants us to listen. This, this is so good. God wants us to listen, especially when we are hurting. It is his way to awaken us from becoming focused on earthly things and reminds us of eternal things. First response, run for the pain. Secondly, deny the pain. He says many times the response is to act as if you are not hurting. Sunday school class. How you doing? Fine. Fine is an acronym that I will not repeat and it doesn't mean fine. Let he who has ears, let him hear. Number two, deny the pain. I think as Christians, the response is to try to, quote, spiritualize our pain and never really deal with it. Face the pain. Be honest. Journal about it. Ask for prayer. Finally, so number one is we are tend, our tendency, like maybe Joseph and Mary, is to run from the pain. Secondly, is to deny the pain. Thirdly, embrace the pain. He says, I think this is what Paul is explaining when it comes to the thorns in life. Embracing the thorn in our life does not mean we are jumping in excitement when we face trials. But trusting God enough to endure it through his strength. Amen. When a person accepts their pain, then it allows the Holy Spirit to pour into their life. Are you embracing the pain, the thorns of life? And using the refining process to bring glory to God. You know what Mary and Joseph did? They embraced the economic problem of having to travel. 
They embraced simply God's will for their life. There's a story in the Old Testament in 2 Samuel chapter 16 when David was on a journey away from his son, his own son, and tried to kill him. I'm not, I'm not naive enough to think that some of the problems in this room, there are things that sometimes get violent in homes with dads and sons. But Absalom wanted to kill his dad so bad that he actually raised an army to drive his dad out of the capital. So here David is heartbroken, having to leave in disgrace his capital, Jerusalem. And he's leaving. And there's this man named Shimei. It just kind of sounds like a shady dude, right? Like Shimei, like shady Shimei. And he begins to come alongside David along the road. And he begins to cuss David out. He begins to throw rocks. He begins to throw dirt in the air. And one of David's mighty men, Abishai, said, Who is this dog? Who is this scum who should curse the king? Let me go take off his head. And here's what David said. David says, Leave him alone and let him curse For the Lord has told him to. You see, David understood the concept that when we have oppressive regimes like Rome in the first century, like some of maybe you have a boss that you think that the boss is from Hades, right? You have whatever it is. We think that sometimes, you know what, God, why don't you just take it away? But God is saying through me allowing this person, this Shimei, this Caesar Augustus, this tyrannical decree, this difficult situation, this stupid kid, this dumb mom or dad, these weird in-laws, these neighbors who I think are from another planet that and let's just be let's just be serious for just a second. Things that have happened in your life that you've been ashamed, you haven't had to tell, you haven't told anyone about because they've been done to you. Those things. David understood the concept that God is sovereign and he is allowing these things into our lives to create in us the spirit and the character of Christ. One of my friend's dad, he grew up in Russia and he was actually a church pastor. There's a Christian pastor in the USSR. And he... Um, they found out about his Christian activity and they threw him in prison for two weeks. Can you imagine that? Going to a Soviet prison for two weeks? It's not Franklin County Jail. Soviet prison. Are y'all awake this morning? Alright? Soviet prison. You know what his dad said? I was able to meet him a couple of years ago. His dad's a little, little bitty guy. He said, I said, what did you think about that being thrown into prison? I, I mean... I've been to see people in prison, but I've never actually been incarcerated. They're like, what was that like? And he says, I'm glad that God, let me, let me quote this. I'm glad, quote, I'm glad God allowed me to go to prison for two weeks because had I not been sent to prison, this is so good. I would not have been able to share the gospel with those in prison. Hello. Is that anti-American thinking or what? We get wrongly accused. We're like calling my lawyer, calling my NRA partner, you know, calling my mom, calling my grandma. Like, we're going to bring some hurting down on you, bro. I'm going to sue you. Your backyard is going to end up here and I'm going to be out there. We think litigation, but his dad thought biblically, you know what? God's in control. God wants me to be in prison for preaching his word. I'm going to preach his word in prison. Where are they going to throw me? Prison number two. I read that and I'm like, that blows me away. That is so not the way that I think. Secondly, and almost finally, 
We can trust in God's sovereignty, even when it seems that he's working backwards. Because first off, we know that God can work through corrupt systems. And secondly, we know that God can work through the lowly. It's really cool there in the verses that follow in verses 5 all the way through 14. What happens is they get, you guys probably know, know the Christmas story. They get to Bethlehem and there's no room. No room, no vacancy signs. Sorry, no room. So what that happens is Jesus is born uh, there in, in that 80 to 100 mile journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem. He's born there um, in, a, in a manger. Verse 7, this is the king of the world. This is the king of everything. This is God in the flesh and he's, he's there and he's born in a manger like a trough for feeding animals. Are you serious? But notice verse 6. I would, I would highlight this. I would... Verse 6, there's a key phrase. And while they were there, here it is. The time came for her to give birth. Now, how could God not be in control of history to have her precisely there at the right place, having been moved by a decree from Caesar Augustus to give birth to the Son of God? And bingo, the GPS pinpointed latitude, longitude, location that God called hundreds of years before. And Jesus is born there. And notice what he's, he's wrapped in. We, remember, swaddling clothes, strips of cloth. Over in uh, Luke chapter 23, remember when Jesus was taken down from the cross? Let me give you a little parallel here. Luke 2, Jesus is born into the world. They wrapped him in strips of cloth, swaddling clothes. Then when Jesus was taken down from the cross... Jesus was wrapped in a linen garment. In Luke chapter 2, when Jesus was born, he was laid in a manger. At the end of the Gospel of Luke, he was laid in a tomb. I just let you guys know that, praise God, he did not stay there. Amen. He was laid in a tomb. He was wrapped in a linen garment. And Jesus is resurrected. He's here. He's alive. He's powerful. And if you believe in Him and you repent of your sins, He will cover you with His grace and His righteousness. And He will cause you to be like Him. He will save your soul. So here's where the awkward part comes as we're almost through. Verse number 8. Good old boys. Shepherds. Hard manual working laborers. Let me just say a note here. The fact that God would send the angels to shepherds, not to Caesar Augustus, not to Quirinius, the governor, not to the Roman Senate, not to the Praetorian Guard, but that God would send it, his angels to shepherds. It's kind of like, ugh, shepherds. I don't even know if we have a job that can compare in America to shepherds. Now, obviously, the Jews thought of them more highly than did, say, the Egyptians. In fact, if you read the book of Genesis, the Egyptians thought shepherds to be so lowly, it was an abomination to even eat a meal with them. So here these guys in night watch, out in verse number 8 in the field. Say, now, Jeff, what are we doing? By the way, I think you got your dates mixed up because we're here in the middle of July and you're preaching the Christmas story. Isn't that supposed to be December? Well, um... We don't have any confirmation that Jesus was born in December. In fact, it's probably not then because they were there um, night shift. Um, and it was probably, say, most scholars say maybe sometime in the springtime. But the date of Jesus' birth um, in terms of the yearly calendar is not all that important. What is important is that he was born in the place that he was in the time that he was. So here's what happens. The angels show up. 
And they say in verse number 10, after the shepherds are freaked out, they're filled with great fear. Do not fear for I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And they tell them about Jesus was born, Christ the Lord, the city of David. And all of these shepherds are terrified. And the angels say, don't be afraid. Now imagine if you're a shepherd, all right? You've never been to the metropolis of Rocky Mount, Virginia. Never. All right? You've never seen lights. You've never seen what we know. And all of a sudden, you're there, night watch, and boom, angels are there. Everything is illuminated in the sky. These guys are absolutely terrified. And notice the phrase, the... the, um, terminology that they give to in verse number 11 to who Christ Jesus is. He is the Savior. He is Christ the Lord. Here's what was said about Caesar Augustus by Paulus Fabius Maximus. You like that name? By the way, for Justin Heather, when you have your kid, you may try that, right? Fabius Paulus Maximus. Anyway, he'll get beat up at school. Don't do that. Here's a statement. In Rome, whether, this is speaking about Caesar Augustus, not Jesus, whether the birthday of the most divine Caesar is a matter of great pleasure or benefit, it is hard to tell. We could justly hold it to be equivalent to the beginning of all things. And he has given a different aspect to the whole world, which blindly would have embraced its own destruction if Caesar had not been born for the common benefit of all. Now that right there is huge in terms of background material because when they said that Jesus is the Savior, the Lord, they're not just saying He's Savior, the Lord. They're saying that Caesar is not. This is an anti-government statement. So they're saying that Jesus is there. And by the way, when the, when the shepherds were so afraid of Jesus, should we be afraid of Jesus today? Absolutely. If you're searching, you say, I, I'm just investigating this Jesus thing. You cannot give Jesus 5% of your life. When you let Jesus in, he takes total and complete control of everything. And he will change your life radically, 100%. So these shepherds were freaked out. And then the angel said, go and see him. Glory to God in the highest peace on earth and goodwill towards men. So then guess what they do? They get up and they go to Bethlehem. Now here's where it's funny. They show up. They show up with Mary and Joseph. Now imagine you're trying to make that transition. You don't know Mary and Joseph. You're a shepherd. They don't know you. Somebody shows up at your house at night and they knock on the door, right? They're there at the manger scene. Joseph's probably like, can I help you? They're like, well, we uh, just were out watching our sheep and uh, they're on the hillsides surrounding Judea. And there was an angel that came and it shone all about and uh, can you imagine how that cra- how crazy that would sound like seriously you're having to make that transition right and then they're like you're thinking this may be the wrong house they may think I'm crazy but how non-crazy would that seem to Mary <laughs> she's like an angel appeared to you and told you that a child would be born here let me tell you a real crazy story what the angel told me when the angel came to visit me and let me just say something when God speaks to your heart about something that he wants you to do for him that will probably sound crazy to those who have had no vision from God now from vision we don't necessarily mean a specific dream but a picture of what God can do I just want to ask you what do you think that God can do at Rocky Mount Baptist Church what do you think Maybe help us see a few people saved every now and then. Or do you think that God can do a work here, not so that I can get the credit or that we can get it, but that God can do a work among us that will cause people to say, wow, what an amazing God we serve.
And then finally, in verse number 18, all who heard it, this is after the shepherds went, they began to preach, wondered at what the shepherds had told them. You realize that the first evangelists in the gospel of Luke were not scholars and philosophers. They were hard-working manual laborers. And let me, let me say, say something before we close about work. When you men work, whether you pick up your machine to work, whether you go clock in at your desk job to work, when you go to work, it is a God-honoring thing. God looks upon labor as a good thing. And I pray, I pray that God would encourage your heart, whatever job you work, men or women, that when you work that job, you work it to the glory of God. And God saw people who did not have jobs that the world would say, wow, but God saw diligence and He saw humility because God can work through the humble. Only the lowly come to Christ. I have to realize that. As a pastor, do you realize that the second that I start thinking that I have arrived... Have you ever been around a pastor who's think that, who thinks that he has arrived? I, I hope and I pray. I'm being dead gut level serious. I pray, I pray that God would strip away pride in my life as it rears its ugly head. Because the second that I begin to think that I am this... That is the second that the hand of God, wherever it was or however much it was, is removed because only the lowly. You realize if you want God to work in your life, you've got to humble yourself. You've got to humble yourself. Cannot happen any other way. You say, Jeff, it seems that God is working backwards. Here's how you get your life and fast forward. You simply submit to Jesus. Submit. Say, well, I thought, you know, I saw something, you know, said let go and let God. So I'm not sure if I'm supposed to grab hold or let go. Submit. You say, what does that mean? That means that when he tells you something, you do it. If he tells you today that you need to get saved. When you get saved there in your pew, you need to walk down and let everybody else know. If he tells you to do it, do it. Ready to get baptized? Do it. Say, you know what? No more games. God, you seem to work back backwards, but today I'm going to take a step forward in obedience. Obey. God will bless humility. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. You need to be saved. If you do not know where you would go, if you died right now. In fact, if you're very certain that it's, you'd go to hell. The Bible says all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Right now, trust Christ. Trust Him. Repent of your sin. Place your faith in Him. Whatever decision, if you need, if you, if you say, you know what, man, I, I'm Christian. I've been saved. I'm but I'm, I'm just, I've been baptized, but I just want to join up here. I know God is calling me to join up with Rocky Mountain Baptist. You come. Just get up out of your seat, walk down the aisle. For some of you, it's just something you need to do internally. It's some area of your life. You just need to turn over to God and say, God, I submit this area. Whatever direction you tell me to go, I'm going to do it. I will humble myself now. Father, we ask that you would draw those who need to make 
commitments towards you during this invitation time. You would give us grace and help us to remember that only the lowly are the ones that you can bless. In Jesus' name, amen.